Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Peter Sutherland, uh, the, um, excuse me, don't forget who I am. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm Peter Sutherland, I'm Chairman of the Board of Governors of the London School of Economics, and I'm delighted to see so many of you here today, but I can say that I'm not surprised, because it provides testimony if testimony were needed as to the importance of the guest that we have in the school today, Professor Mohammed Yunus, who is to be awarded an honorary degree of the London School of Economics. As you all know, he has made an outstanding contribution to the eradication of global poverty. That contribution is evident now all over the world. The Grameen Bank, which he founded, in Bangladesh in the 1970s to make loans to entrepreneurs too poor to qualify for traditional bank loans now has 7.5 million borrowers. And the success of the model that he created has led to similar initiates, initiatives in over 100 countries, including the United States. The crucial importance of microcredit in the struggle against poverty was recognized by the award of a Nobel Prize to Professor Yunus and the Grameen Bank in 2006. So it's a great honor to the school that he has accepted this award and he's been able to join us here today to accept it. And I'd now like to call on Professor Stuart Corbridge who is going to give the oration. Thank you, Chairman. Director, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor and privilege to propose Professor Muhammad Yunus for an honorary degree. As everyone here must know, Professor Yunus's work with the Grameen Bank has helped to improve the lives of tens of millions of people, and most of all, poor women borrowers in his native country of Bangladesh. As many of us also know, Professor Yunus is one of the most respected and I would say most loved visitors to the school. And I expect that tonight again, it will be some time before he sits down to a dinner in his honor. Professor Yunus always makes time for our students and visitors and his kindness, his warmth and his charisma are appreciated I think almost as much, almost as much as his extraordinary achievements in the fields of microfinance and social business. So let me please tell you a little bit more about the man and his work. Muhammad Yunus was born in 1940 in a village close to the city of Chittagong in eastern Bengal, which was then part of British India. He mainly grew up in Chittagong and went to school there before enrolling in the economics department of Dhaka University, where he received his BA in 1960 and his MA in 1961. In the same year, Professor Yunus was appointed to a lectureship in economics at Chittagong College. He stayed there until 1965, when a Fulbright scholarship took him to Vanderbilt University in the United States for his doctorate in economics. After a short teaching stint in the US, Professor Yunus returned to newly independent Bangladesh following the War of Liberation in 1971. While teaching at the University of Chittagong, Professor Yunus became increasingly interested in rural economics and in the plight of small farmers and landless laborers. Famously, in 1976, he lent the equivalent of 27 US dollars to 42 people in Jobra village, close to Chittagong, with the aim of releasing bamboo workers there from the grip of local moneylenders. This in a very real sense, was the start of what became in 1983 the Grameen Bank. And indeed, I would say, of the worldwide microfinance movement and its, in its recent and best known incarnation. Professor Yunus realized that traditional banks were not lending to poor people and especially not to women. They were not considered creditworthy. 
The Grameen Bank, in contrast, took the view and still takes the view that poor people will use loans to work or manufacture their way out of poverty. They then repay their loans at least as reliably as anyone else. Now, it's sometimes difficult now, 35 years on, to recognise just how enabling, just how revolutionary these intuitions were. In the early days, Professor Yunus had to make himself the guarantor for a credit line from the Janta Bank to poor households in Jobra. Yet by the end of the last decade, the Grameen Bank had over 7.5 million borrowers, 97% of whom were women. In Bangladesh alone, the Grameen, or the Village Bank, has lent more than 7 billion US dollars to poor people since the mid-1980s. And today it has a presence in over 95% of that country's villages. It's also to be found in countries throughout the global south and indeed in New York and the UK, I think in Glasgow. Professor Eunice's extraordinary achievements and those of the Grameen Bank more widely were recognised, as the chairman said, by the award in 2006 of the Nobel Peace Prize. The Norwegian Nobel Committee recognised that poor people without security generally pull their way out of extreme income poverty by finding waged work or by accumulating small assets. Economic and social development thus happens partly from below, as the Nobel citation has it. By enabling millions of people to access microfinance and technologies that otherwise would have been unavailable to them, the Grameen Bank has helped poor families to live lives of respect, dignity and opportunity. The same, I think, can also be said of Professor Eunice's more recent innovations in the field of social business or entrepreneurship, the Grameen Phone, Grameen Shakti, an energy company, the Grameen Textile and Agriculture companies, and more recently the tie-up with a French company, Danone, that Professor Eunice wrote about in his 2007 book, Creating a World Without Poverty. In addition to the Nobel Peace Prize, Professor Eunice, the banker to the poor, has been awarded more honorary degrees and national and international prizes than I've written academic books and papers. <laughs> really. <laughs> if I was to read out the list of his awards, it would prolong this joyful occasion by at least half an hour. Let me just say that Professor Eunice has recently been honoured by the following universities, amongst many, many others. Duke University in the US, or Duke if you're an American. <laughs> Kyushu University in Japan. The Catholic University of Guayaquil in Ecuador. The Higher School of Economics in Moscow. And Glasgow Caledonian University in Scotland. In addition, Professor Yunus has been the recipient of the Independence Day Award, which is Bangladesh's highest award in 1987, the Mohammed Shabdeen Award for Science in 1993, the World Food Prize in 1994, the King Hussein Humanitarian Leadership Award in 2000, the Volvo Environment Prize in 2003, and the Franklin D. Roosevelt Freedom Award in 2006. Now this year, notwithstanding these myriad achievements, Professor Yunus has been having some difficulties with the retirement age in Bangladesh. He's been, too, he's been told that he's too old to be a managing director of a bank there. Well, it's not for me or LSE to judge the laws of Bangladesh, although I do note that several international figures, including Mary Robinson, Hillary Clinton, and John Kerry, have expressed concern about Professor Eunice's position. I would like to let you know, however, Professor Eunice, that the government of the United Kingdom in its wisdom, if that's the right word, <laughs> has just within the last month or two removed the default retirement age in this country. So if you do find yourself <laughs> this is totally implausible. If you if you do find yourself with time on your hands, which seems so unlikely given your extraordinary energy and commitments. And this is the real bit. Do always please consider yourself welcome 
here at the LSE. If you want somewhere to teach, please consider us. With that happy thought in mind, may I, Director, request that by the authority of the Court of Governors, you admit Professor Muhammad Yunus to the degree of science, economics, honoris causa. By the authority of the Court of Governors, I admit you to the degree of Doctor of Science in Economics, honoris causa. Thank you very much. Clap, the less time we will have to uh, listen to <laughs> Professor Eunice. So may I uh, ask you to give your address to us all? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's the good thing about coming here. You get a job offer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I was a jobless person. <laughs> now I feel happy. I got it. The employment, unemployment rate going so high, <laughs> yeah, very reassuring. <laughs> Good evening. I'm delighted to be back here, but this time it's a great occasion, and I feel thrilled. I feel extremely honored for the recognition you give. It's not a personal recognition for me. It's a recognition to millions of poor women who have been struggling hard to make a difference in their lives. And young people who work for Grameen Bank to make a dream come true. It's a recognition of the human capability human spirit that given a chance they can take care of themselves and that's what Grameen Bank is all about. I feel very happy to come back here because I've met students on previous occasions. I was amazed after that wherever I go I meet people, young people coming and say, oh, I saw you, I heard you when you came to LSE. And that gives me a feeling that LSE graduates are everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how many times I'll hear this again because of this gathering here. Then uh, LSE has a special contribution to Grameen F initiatives because one of your graduates Lamia Murshid is right here today. He right here, yeah. She has been working with us. She is the executive director of UNIS Center. And she runs an international program for Grameen, all the programs that you see happening in many different countries. So this is a direct connection with us, with the LSE. When I come back to university campus, every time I get a chance, it brings me back to my university days when I enjoyed working with the students. And Grameen Bank was born with the students. Because uh, when I go to the village, I always took my students with me. It would be impossible to create this bank without those students around me. So I always enjoyed having them with me. And they are the one who kind of encouraged me and 
assured me that the things I want to do can be done, will be done. They will carry it out, and they did. And they remained with me when I created the bank, and they are the top leaders of uh, Grameen Bank hierarchy. They are the one who started in the first village, Jobra, as you mentioned. I had no banking background. I didn't know anything about banking. But I bumped into it, and I did something which later on said it is banking. It was, I had no idea that that's what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> but on hindsight, I think the best thing that I ever had, I, di I didn't know anything about banking. That was the best thing <laughs> happened to me. Because I feel if I knew about banking, if I learned about banking, I'll go back to their logic of banking and I'll follow the same thing they have been told to me. Since I was not told, since I didn't know anything, I was a free person. I, I could create anything I want. And that freedom is very important for me because then you address things without any limitation. So when you learn, you think this is a good thing you're learning, which it is. But if you don't know about something, don't feel bad about it. Maybe that's the area that you'll finally get through and make a big difference because you could create things in your own way. Unlearning is a very important thing too. Because sometimes things that we learn become burden on us. We cannot see clearly. And that lesson comes to me repeatedly as I go on. But the mindset that we, are, we create in this institution of education, that we carry for the rest of our life, is very difficult to absorb new things because it doesn't fit into the things that we have learned. So I always emphasize the unlearning process so that you are always ready to give up one to take up one. That's what makes you keep alive. How did I do this if I didn't know anything about it? I made it very simple. You know, if I tell the whole story, you'll notice I almost specialize in doing little things. I always did very little things. And you mentioned $27. That's my start. Giving loans to 42 people. Imagine how small each loan was. That was my beginning. And you'll continue to see still, we call the whole thing that we created micro credit, tiny credit, and it became big, global. And another thing probably I specialize in, I do things which I don't know anything about, every time. And I'll tell you some of the other things that I did. But how did I do it without knowing anything? Advantage was, I made it very simple. I don't want to go in a complicated way. And I try to address things in a very simple way. I just come closest to possible to the problem. And I called it worm's eye view that you see things at a very close range, see it very clearly. Then you avoid the chance of making mistakes. Sometimes we pride ourselves of having bird's eye view. You know everything, you see everything. But you see blurred things, hazy things. You don't know what you're seeing. You make up stories, you really didn't exist. The way I did it, I can only describe it this way. He said, whenever I needed a procedure of banking, what I have to do now, I just look at the conventional banks. They're everywhere, so it's easy to find out what they do in that case. Once I learned what they do, I just do the opposite. <laughs> and it worked. It never failed me. Everything you hear about Grameen Bank is nothing but doing the opposite. They go to the rich, I went to the poor. They go work in the city center, I decided to do in the village, in the remote village. 
They go to men, I went to women. They want collateral, I said no collateral, forget it. They want big lawyers to tie you up so that you cannot run away from them. We said no lawyers. Grameen Bank is probably the only bank in the world which doesn't have any lawyers. It makes life so much easy. Because <laughs> the only thing you have is trust. And amazingly, trust works. We forgot that there's something called trust. I keep your trust, you keep my trust. That's it. That works out. Entire thing about microcredit is about building that trust. Conventional banks want their borrowers to come to their office. We reversed it. We go to the borrowers ourselves. We made a first principle of Grameen Bank without knowing anything when we're just tiny little thing in one village. Our first principle was people should not come to the bank. Banks should go to people. And we still do that. We have now more than five and a half million. In the meantime, we have grown a lot with 8.3 million borrowers now all over Bangladesh, every single village in Bangladesh. It's our duty to go to every single person of these 8.3 million, to meet them every week, to do the business with them. It's a gigantic task, but it works like a clockwork. Rain, shine, doesn't matter. Grameen Bank's work goes on. That's a great discipline and network that gives enormous stamina to the organization. Conventional banks are owned by rich people and most likely rich men. Grameen Bank is owned by poor people. 97% of the owners are women. That's the borrowers of Grameen Bank own Grameen Bank. So it's a very interesting bank in that way. So this is how we reverse the system and it works. Today, nobody can tell us that poor people are not creditworthy. I had an amazing experience in 2008. We started because we are uh, always insisting that it can be done in any country. So I was challenged to do it in New York City. I said, I'll do it. So we started, called it Grameen America started in New York City and it worked beautifully. We do everything we do in the villages of Bangladesh in New York City. At the beginning we said, this is a, new, this is a different country, Dr. Yunus, it don't work here. I said, I'll figure it out, I'll find out, let me try. And it's working beautifully, but the second half of 2008, you remember, financial crisis came over. Almost, it's a, it's a scene to observe in New York City. On the one side of the street, all these big banks are collapsing, huge banks. On the other side of the street, Grameen Bank is flourishing. No problem. I said, I wish somebody here will ask me a question. A journalist from New York Times would come and ask me a question. Who is creditworthy? I said, I'll be so proud to answer this question now. <laughs> so there is no problem with that. But it's still, we still have the same financial institution that we always had. Despite the fact the idea of microcredit is spread all over the world, under all circumstances, whether it is in the mountains of Guatemala, or it is in Inner Mongolia or Sichuan in China, doesn't matter. They work exactly the same, or New York City, Jackson Heights, or Bronx, or whatever. We have four branches in New York City right now, with six and a half thousand borrowers in New York City. Repayment rate, no collateral, nothing exactly the way I described you. Repayment rate is 99.3% right now. People were warning us, these are people, New, York, New Yorkers, you watch out. <laughs> this is not Bangladeshi village woman. 
you do everything you ask them to do. These are the people who will do, tell you one thing, do something else. 99.3%. Never failed in the last four years. Still going on. It is so impressive. We are asked to do it, invited us to do it in Omaha, Nebraska. So we have a branch in Omaha, Nebraska. Exactly the same. It's working beautifully. <clears throat> then asked to do it in Indianapolis. So we opened a branch in Indianapolis. This year we're invited to do it in San Francisco and Detroit. We said, we'll go anywhere. You just test us any way you want. It still worked the same way. It still worked the same way. And you know what, what we did? We sent the people from Bangladesh to run the program in New York City. <laughs> and the person who came, every one of them, never been to the United States in their life. They know nothing. So they are very scared when they're coming. How? We don't know anything about them. I said, that's the advantage you got. <laughs> if you know, you'll be confused. <laughs> you do exactly what you do in the villages of Bangladesh. Forget about the America. These are people. People who need money. Their, their need is exactly the same as you have in Bangladesh. And they, they did it, and they continue to do it. Then we wonder what kind of system we pride about. All these financial institutions that we build, almost two-thirds of the world population is excluded from their services. People need money, but they cannot do that. New York City, only place you, a poor person can get money is the loan sharks, payday lenders. Interest rate, 1,000%, 1,500%. I'm sure in London you have that too. But what are the financial institutions doing if this th thriving business goes on right in front, under your own nose? Nobody cares. Let me go to the next one that I did. <clears throat> I started looking at the problems. Microcredit is one, people need it. Then other things started attra attracting my attention. How do we solve this? Then I have an instinct, instinct response to every problem I see. Whenever I see a problem, I create a business to solve it. People say, how can you do business with a problem? I said, it works beautifully. If you make a business, it works. First strength is you have to know it very well to design a business. When you can design a business, then money circulates. It doesn't disappear anymore. If you try to address a problem by putting charity money, charity money goes, it never comes back. So you are going around seeking, raising money, give me some money so that I can help these people. So you give again. You use it, gone. Next day you come back again. And that is a, such a limitation. You waste your time raising money rather than doing the work. If you can transform it into business to solve problem, it works beautifully. Then I look around whether the poverty is created by the poor people or somebody else. Every time I see my conclusion is the same. Poverty is not created by the poor people. They are very hardworking people. They are intelligent people. Poverty is created by the system that we built. System that we learn in our university classes. That has created poverty. So if we change the system, poverty will be gone. Because it's not the fault of the person. It is externally imposed phenomenon. It's not internally generated phenomenon. If you understand that, then we can go back, look at your textbooks. Where the seed of poverty is lying here? It's there. You have to pick them up. One, institutions are at fault, like the financial institutions, I was just telling you how they did. And the concepts, frameworks. On the concept side, I concentrate on one issue particularly. I said, look at the concept of business in the economic theory. There's only one kind of business in economic theory, business to make money. And they emphasize it in textbook that it has to be maximization of profit. So what a emphasis you have to put. I keep saying that theoreticians who create that theory has misinterpreted human beings. Human beings are not robots. Only thing they do in their lifetime is make money. Human beings are much bigger entity than money-making entity. 
we picked only one aspect of human being, which is a selfishness or self-centeredness, and built the whole theory about business. So the whole world is on that side, busy making money. But that's what we have been trained. That's what we learned. That's what we, our mindset is created. Our institutions are created for that. So we have created a world with money, profit maximization. Sometimes it becomes an obsession with money. It gets more damage than you can imagine, that obsession. So the social dimension, economics is supposed to be a social science, but the social dimension is completely forgotten. I said human beings are selfish, I accept it, it's part of us. But human beings, same human beings are also selfless beings, equally powerfully selfless beings. You don't use it in social science, in the economics. So you're left out, build, hold the economy excluding that part. I said that's where we made the mistake. We made a very lopsided economic theory and world that we created out of that theory. We pride ourselves about theory, but for absolutely wrong reason. So I said, why don't we create business on the basis of selflessness that we have? In selfish business, everything is for me. The more I make, the more happy I get. In selfless business, everything is for others. The more I make other people happy, I make myself happy. Why don't you do that? Oh, no, the people don't work like that. I said, I work like that. I created many companies, more than 50 companies. I never even thought about owning a single share of any of these companies. So I said, maybe there are some crazy people like me too. Why didn't you keep a little room for them so that they can work? At least tell young people, the students, that there are two kinds of business. One business to make money, another business to change the world. And human being has enormous capacity, enormous creativity. But all this creativity and technology is used for only one purpose, making money. I said, if you can use this capacity that we have to change the world, to solve the problem, none of this problem can exist. So that is the power of social business. We continue to expand. There are lots of social businesses we created. And we created one with a multinational company, Danone, to solve the problem of micronutrients among the children of Bangladesh. We created yogurt, fortified with all the micronutrients, make it very cheap so that everybody, every child can afford it. Even the poorest child can afford it. If you eat this yogurt, gradually you overcome all the, micro, all the malnutrition and it becomes a healthy child. Micro, uh, sorry, malnutrition means your physical growth is stunted. You'll see lots of children, age 12 but still little boy. Because he has no or she has no physical growth. And the amazing part of it, mental growth gets <coughs> stunted. So you spend a lot of money on education. But the receiving end doesn't receive it because they are stunted. They cannot understand what you're talking about. What a damage we make to the human being for simple reason that you can buy this for pennies. They remain stunted. So this is the purpose of the company. Neither Danone wants to make money out of it, nor Grameen wants to make money out of it. This is a social business, non-loss, non-dividend company to solve problems. Then we created many other companies like that. Multinationals keep coming to us. During my two days here, there are at least two big companies who contacted us. We had a serious discussion to see how to create social business with them. One company invited me, Adidas, not now, previously. He said, how do we create a social business? I said, very simple. Like what? I said, you start with a create a new company and have a mission statement. Like, what can we have a mission statement? I said, one mission statement you can frame Nobody in the world should go without shoes. As a shoe company, it's our responsibility to make shoes affordable even to the poorest person. He was shocked to hear this. <laughs> he said, it is a big goal. I said, yes, but Adidas is a big company. <laughs> Why should you start with a small goal? 
So that hurt his feeling that I <laughs> see he got all his colleagues together, talked hours and hours. Finally, at the evening, he declared that we are going to take this challenge. But he asked me how cheap the shoes should be <laughs> in order to be affordable to the poorest person. I said, well, it's very simple, maybe under one euro. He said, you're a very tough man. <laughs> but they took the challenge. It worked two years of research and running around and designing products, inputs. Finally, they came out with the shoes. We did the test marketing last year. Now this year, we'll be doing the mass marketing. So if you give the challenge, you have the technology. Simply, you never thought about this. So you imagine how many companies can do how many things in healthcare, in environment, in everything. So that's the challenge. And young people like you, it's an amazing generation. Your generation is so privileged Never in human history ever we had any young generation as powerful as you are. Why are you so privileged? Why did you get it? Because of technology in your hand. While I'm talking, I see all those things clicking. I'm, it's a probably it's tweeting or whatever you call it, Facebook. I don't know. <laughs> but you know that. You do 1,000 mails, 1,000 texts per second. <laughs> the speed that you have in your your mind. It's unbelievable. It's a limitless power you have. Imagine the child born today. What a powerful child he would be, he or she would be. You have unlimited power, all of us unlimited power, but we never had a chance to explore that power. You are exploring. Access to information to you is so simple. For any question, you just click it, it's there. We didn't have that opportunity. So what use you are going to make of this power? That's the question you'll be asking. Each one of you has the power to change the whole world, not just a corner of the world, whole world. Are you going to use that? If you're not aware of this, it will never be used. Just feel confident, I can change the whole world. And I want to make it happen. How do we do it? Start. To begin with one suggestion, start a small social business, tiny little, so or imagine or design a social business. Pick a problem and design a business out of it. If you don't have the money to invest, I'm sure there are a lot of people say, hey, this is a great idea, I'll invest. Because it's a tiny little company. If it works, if you can create a company just to create three jobs for unemployed people, that's the whole purpose of your company, to find good employment for three unemployed people. If you can find that out, you have cracked the problem of unemployment. And I say, what a disaster that we have right now. All the crushing problems that are coming, crisis after crisis. I said, this is a wake-up call. We are still sleeping. We don't want to wake up. Wake-up call telling us this system is not working. It's the end of this civilization, almost. But we can create a new civilization. In that new civilization, there'll be no word called unemployed. I cannot even imagine a full, able-bodied human being with all the unlimited creativity remain unemployed, unutilized, wasted away. What kind of society is that? It's totally unacceptable. So it's our failure that we do not know how to do this. I even kid with a joke about it. I said, have you ever seen an animal remaining unemployed? <laughs> How come with all the glory of our knowledge, millions of people are unemployed? In some country in Europe, 46% of the young people are unemployed. In the same country I was just coming from, same country there is a region, unemployment among the youth is as high as 70%. What a shocking thing to happen. Is there something wrong with this young man or young woman? No. He, he, he is the same person who can change the whole world. But we dismissed. So we create a world. It's our job now. Young people should not be waiting to see what the previous generation telling them to do. You decide on your own and you can make it. Thank you very much.
Thank you. you very much. Can, can you hear me back there on this microphone? Good. Well, Professor Yunus has very kindly said that he will take questions. We're going to do them one at a time, um, and we only have about 25 minutes, so I am going to have to cut this brutally short, unfortunately, at the end. And I've been told to take questions alternating between the two tiers. Uh, we'll start with, yeah, your hand went up first, I think, and then we'll come downstairs. A gentleman there. Yeah. Professor Yunus, congratulations on your degree, and you. Uh, you are unstoppable. <laughs> I hope to join you soon as a PhD graduate as well. Very good, thank you. Um, I, I'm doing my, my little uh, contribution with my best friend Michele. We've created Social Business World, which is a social network like Facebook, entirely dedicated to the idea of social business. The, the idea we're grappling with is can we bring this down to the lowest possible level? Like, you know that speed, the tweeting, the, can, can we use that energy to, to grasp, uh, uh, to, to, to make social business be born? So here's the question to you. What does it, what, what it takes to have social business being born at the grassroots? So you, you mentioned Danone, you mentioned Adidas. What does it take to make it big at the grassroots level? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, we have been doing that a lot, but uh, I didn't mention this because uh, this is something very local, very small, probably to not impress you. Uh, I mentioned Danone, even these multinational have the need for this social business, for their own sake, for their own sanity, they need that. They can bring this technology to help make things different. And that's the challenge, and if they can do that, any company can do that. But that's a company issue. But individually, anybody can do a social business. That's what I'm saying, three jobs. Create a company to create three jobs. That's all. Uh, I just uh, coming from a conference uh, in Germany, and one young kid, just a high school graduate, he said, I started a social business, and it works very well. So somebody asked, well, how, what is your investment? He said, my investment is 100, 100 euro. So everybody's shocked, 100 euro, you have a company? He said, yes. What I do, someone makes beautiful scarves. She can make just for her household. What he's doing, she makes it, and he makes sure he sells it. So he's selling. So now that he's selling this scarf for one woman, several women said, we have a scarf too. So he's telling, telling that this is my business. I market it, not for my profit. Make sure they got the money so that they can sell it. They started doing it for themselves in Germany. So now, when I was coming back, he came to me, he said, uh, I just got an order of 750 scarf from a company because they want to give it as a uh, Christmas gift out of the social business. So, see, people responding to it automatically. It's a very simple idea. But there are so many opportunities to that. Once you delink from the money-making world, you, suddenly you have a new world emerging and see how useful you can be in solving problems. If you can solve a tiny little, a fraction of a huge problem, you found the real crack to, to crack it open completely. So that is the beauty of making these tiny little companies. And you can make any one of us, you don't have to go and really do it, just design a social business. Find the problem, design it. And designing it, if you find out a good design, you hit the ball, it's a hit the jackpot. You, now you, everything will work. Anybody can invest in it to make it happen. Thank you. Come downstairs. Yes. Young lady at the front. Hello. 
thing. I think there is a microphone that will come to you. If you just give it a second. Perhaps you could introduce yourself as well. Thank you. Hi, my name is Raj Lakshmi Day. Um, congratulations, Professor Yunus. You. You're you. very inspiring. Um, my question is with regards to women's empowerment, um, which I interpret to be um, much, much of it is a financial empowerment and much of it is social empowerment. And I can definitely see the financial aspect. So what? Um, so I know there would be a trickle-down effect to social things as well, but what other direct approaches um, are, is, in, is Grameen involved with with regards to women's empowerment? A lot of things, for example, uh, not only give the loans, uh, she also encouraged them to form a group of five women. So there's the first experience of creating an organization. And they elect their own chairperson, elect their own secretary out of five, and rotate. Because nobody can succeed within a year, they have to change their role. So the step down and somebody else becomes. So everybody has a chance of leadership role. And the bigger group, which we call a center, has about 50 or 60 women. They have to elect a center chief. For the first time, the women are asked to choose their own leader. So that gives them, the person who gets it, she gets the leadership role to perform. So gradually it opens up many things. Then we ask them to open a bank account to save. And they save tiny money every week because you, every week you have to save and you do that. We lend out over one and a half billion dollars in Grameen Bank today. And all this money comes from deposit. 56% of this deposit come from the borrower themselves, from those tiny little savings accounts, and which is nearly a billion dollars. So these poor women not only take loans, half a billion, one and a half billion dollars, they have their own savings of a billion, nearly a billion dollars. That's a tremendous strength to know that I have money in the bank. You may not use it, but the knowing that I have the money, particularly for a woman who doesn't own anything in the society, today she's owner. That gives a tremendous status and self-confidence. She looks the same, talks the same, that inner feeling is different. Because she knows she is no longer a person that can be pushed out. That's it. You can go upstairs again. A young lady at the front here, please. Front row. Again, if you could just introduce yourself, that would be nice. Um, hello, Professor. Hello. Congratulations. My name is Chibundu, and I'm a student. Um, I was just wondering the role that stable government plays in microfinance, because coming from a country where there's very little running water, little lights, building business structures on top of that seems very difficult. Well, each country has its own difficulties. Bangladesh has its own difficulties. Uh, so uh, we, we have to work in a geek whatever environment we are in, because we cannot change the world so that I can work. So we take the world as it is and start the world so that gradually that world changes the way we want it to be. So we take it as it is and see how you overcome those problems. Microcredit is easy under all circumstances because you're dealing with a few women together and so on. As long as they need money, they have an opportunity to make use of the money, to earn money so they pay you back. It works. And then as you grow in institutionalization, you may have problem because then you have separate units so that you are not becoming big, you're just local, something. So try to see how under those circumstances it can work. It's a relationship between human beings. It's not, that's why I said we don't have lawyers. So you're not coming to framework where uh, some rules and procedures of somebody else work. It's the rules and procedures that we designed by ourselves. And that's what we want to do. I think there's a good chance that it will work. I cannot tell you that everything will work under all circumstances, but we bring our creativity, we bring our ingenuity, and that's what makes it happen. Thank you. Come downstairs again. Probably the nearest hand to you. Uh, good evening, Professor Younes. I'm a student uh, pursuing my master's in economics at the LSE, and I have a great respect for you. you. Uh, my question is on micro-savings. Uh, that is a huge need for the poor today to have a safe place to keep Save. their savings. So I was wondering if Grameen is doing any work on that. Yeah, that's what I just told you, that uh, nearly a billion dollars in savings from the borrower themselves. 
So it's a, so powerful an idea that you have this money and collectively it's so big. When I talk to my business friends who have big companies and so on, I tell them that look, don't underestimate these poor women because they have enough money to buy off your company several times over. <laughs> so that, that's a good thing to tell them. And if the, the, the women in the village feels very good that you can tell such things. Right, there's no scientific way of doing this, but young man up there with his hand up, blue shirt, young lady, I can't see from here. <laughs> I've got my Thank glasses you. off now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you, Professor Yunus, for Thank your inspiring you. talk. I'm Roxanne Schulz, I'm studying development management here. Uh, so you mentioned the importance of information, and I was wondering, so in those countries where there are a lot of poor people at the base of the pyramid, um, how can they actually assess the, the quality of the service? And how, how can we make the company accountable for those people who don't have the same access as we do to information? Thank you. Uh, one, I was just mentioning that so far as the Grameen Bank is concerned, it's owned by them. So it's not somebody is making rules for them. They sit in the board. They are the one who ratifies every single rule that we have. Or you want to change it, something is not going wrong, you tell your representative who sits in the board that you elected her. So this rule is no good for us, change that. So they can go in the board and discuss and say, okay, we're changing it. So that way the information flow is both ways. It's not the bank telling, it's not bank coming from somewhere else. It's their bank, they sit in the board and they get the services of that. And then we created other avenues for information. The cell phone, you know, cell phone is everywhere right now. Mobile phone is everywhere. We created a company called Grameen Phone. It's the largest mobile phone in the country. And our first objective of this company was to make sure we bring the phone in the hands of the poor women of Bangladesh. When Bangladesh didn't have more than half a million telephone in the whole country in 1996, we started this company in 97. Today, 2011, we have 65 million subscribers of telephones in the country out of a population of 160 million. So you can imagine the penetration of telephone, not Grameen Phone alone altogether, but Grameen Phone has more than 50% market share out of six operators. So that's another source. We are using this cell phone to bring other services, healthcare services, banking services, education, whatever you So cell phone is, is the future almost, you can do everything you want. This is something to do. We have high maternal mortality and we are struggling hard to bring it down. One of the thing I'm complete, co continuously reminding the diagnostic tools maker, ultrasono equipment maker, I said, you do all this fancy thing, make it very expensive so that patients have to pay a lot. They have to go to a doctor to do that. What you should be doing now, you should be do, put ultrasono into the mobile phone. You have many icons, one icon will be ultrasono. Touch it, it will become ultrasono. And put, plug in the probe and you take all the images and it is transmitted through the telephone to the desk of the expert who is sitting in the city, so wherever they are. And then the expert picks up the phone, talks to the woman, until it tells you that your baby is okay, looks fine, don't worry about it, we take care, I'll come back two months later, I'll talk to you again. It's possible. I said, you can pick up the phone and you can touch the icon, you find out the temperature, uh, weather of a country somewhere, you don't even know where this country or what the city is. You know this, it's there, at the touch of the screen. I said, how come we can't transmit the temperature of my body? The phone is just with my body. I can touch and it transmit the information, what is my temperature, whether I'm running temperature. Why can't it take my heartbeat? Why can't it take my pulse? It's possible simply we don't use our mind in that way. You are using our mind to make money. You are not using our mind to solve people's problem. So these are the problems, you can do this. Technology is right here. I used to tell that technology, the way it's happening, someday we'll have Aladdin's lamp in our hand and we'll touch it, and digital a giant will come out. A digital genie will say, what can I do for you, ma'am? 
I said, today I don't have to say that because Aladdin's lamp is in our hand right now. We touch it, it happens. What is that you want to happen? That's the question. If you want something to happen, it will happen. If you don't think about what you want to happen, it will never happen. So question what you want to happen. There's nothing called impossible today. 20 years back, what was impossible? Today is possible. 20 years from today, what we think impossible today will be a normal everyday thing everybody will be doing. So the distance between impossible and possible is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And very soon it will collapse. There's, you will be searching around what is impossible. The kids are asking us the question, what is impossible? I can't find anything. <laughs> and that's the speed we are giving. So let's figure out what are the impossibles we have now. This is our chance. Because we can make it possible before anybody else does. Because it will be possible. No matter how impossible it is. That's the human power. You have to believe in the capacity of human being. Creativity of human being. Then we'll start working. I'll come back downstairs. I'm going to play it safe and call a younger person or a slightly less younger person. <laughs> um, younger person, the white shirt. <laughs> microphone's going to come to you. Thanks for giving me the opportunity, Professor, first of all. Um, congratulations. Thank you. Um, I'm a student from Bangladesh. I, uh, we, uh, it gives me immense uh, pleasure and honor to say this, that I belong to the same city that Professor Yunus is from, which is Chittagong. And um, there, there are certain criticisms about your programs, your work, and we all know about the uh, professor. Uh, professors already mentioned about the uh, the political um, implications uh, of your or the people in the government at the moment has done uh, to your role in Grameen Bank. And the opposition is promising true or false a lot of things when if they come in power next time. But regardless of all that, I, as a citizen of Bangladesh, want to say that we are very proud of you. Uh, we are very proud the fact, about the fact that you brought um, Nobel Peace Prize to our country for the first time. That's one thing. Secondly, could you just, um, just move to the question? Yes. Um, <laughs> about higher education in Bangladesh. Um, as I see it, all the universities in Bangladesh, the private ones, are social business in one way or another, as you mentioned, if I read or understand your concept properly. What do you think we should do to make the higher education or improve the higher education of private universities in Bangladesh, if you have any comments on that? Well, I'll just Thank make you. a general comment rather than get uh, in the Bangladesh uh, situation. I think still we continue the old-fashioned education because we it's a continuum of the education, tradition, history that we have. But we have come to a, a place in history when we can really make a breakthrough in education, providing it in a completely different way, and rethinking of what are the messages that we give to the young people, how do they learn, how do they process their learning, how do they act, how do they get connected with the real people. Uh, in the beginning I was mentioning that I got into the worm's eye view. I see it very clearly, if you have the worm's eye view. Do the students have worm's eye view? Or they get out, get out of the university having bird's eye view and feeling proud that I know everything. And then undermine other people. Because I know everything. I know in a, another way. But I have never had this bird, worm's eye view to really understand the person and the problems and so on. So how to integrate that? This is one challenge. Another challenge is a kind of a message in the back. You don't say it loudly or clearly probably, but back, you work hard, study hard, get good grade, get to the best university, get the degree from there, and find the best job. I think that's not a good message for young people. Job is not life. Life is something else. Life is to create things. Job is to repeat things. 
And how do you make that? Like we have been confronted with situation in Grameen Bank. It just happened because we encourage our young people to go to university, we give them education loan so that they can finish the education, become doctors, engineers, and thousands of them are coming. They're always complaining for many years in the beginning, saying that we have no jobs. I get good education, I have good certificate, I have no job. In the beginning, I was puzzled what to do. Then I stood up, I said, look, don't ever talk about jobs. You are privileged young people. You are children of Grameen families. You, your mother owns a bank. <laughs> Why are you looking for a job? I said always, but the, the day you go to school, you always think in your mind and you repeat this pledge every day you wake up in the morning. I'm not a job seeker, I'm a job giver. Build yourself as a job giver and prepare yourself as a job giver. Money is not your problem. Your mother's bank has unlimited money. You just, just come up with ideas, what you want to do with money. If you, anybody is going to apply for any job, I will be very stern with them. Why are you looking for a job? What happened? Some say, we don't know what to do. I said, again, you are very lucky. You have a very strong consultant at your home, your mother. She didn't know anything when she began. She started raising chicken and then moved into raising cows and do three cows, then ten cows. And this is how she made a business out of it and sent you to school. And you're telling me that you don't know anything? What good is your education if you cannot do better than your illiterate mother? Your illiterate mother created her life she, he brought, she brought whatever she knew into the world, into the action. And you are telling me that you don't know anything after all this education? Then why do we have education? So what you can do, you can make it 20 times bigger, 50 times bigger what your mother does. That's the beginning point. You already have the base of your business. Whatever your mother did, do it bigger. That's what the education is for. So anyway, are we telling the students, are we making them as job givers and job seekers together? No. Entrepreneurship is a built-in feature of every human mind, every human being. But we let it dry up because we don't want to use it, because we want to be a job seeker. I'm always trying to see if I get the promotion, whether I get the right position, right company, this is it. So this is a, another part of the education part of it, and the social business. How do we contribute, how to design. So all together we have to redesign, as I was telling you that creating a new civilization, this is a part of that. We have to address all these things together because human history brought us to a point where life is changing very fast. If you cannot get ready for it, we'll go in the wrong direction. So we don't want to go in the wrong direction, we learned enough to save ourselves from that. So that's a point that we have to emphasize. Thank you. I fear that we've reached our, our last question, which is going to be upstairs. Once we've had this question, I'm going to invite Professor Eunice to take his seat, and then the director of the school, Professor Judith Rees, will say a few words. The gentleman in a blazer and tie up here has been wanting to ask a question for some time. Again, if you could introduce yourself and keep it fairly short, sir. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for identifying me in the blue suit and tie. Uh, I'm uh, K. Mahesh. I'm a law student, not studying law to become a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> but I'm a great fan of uh, Professor Muhammad Yunus. And I have two short questions. Uh, why is it uh, that the political establishment in Bangladesh, uh, they are very concerned about your retirement age? And uh, B, what should be the role of the government and uh, poverty alleviation programs? Thank you. Yeah. Well, on the first question, uh, uh, you have to ask the government to find out what <laughs> their basic logic of it. On the second question, everybody has a role. It's a problem for all of us. Today, the problem is we leave, leave it to the government. They should solve the problem of poverty. So poor politicians, they keep trying to solve the problem of poverty, which they have no clue how to do that. So every time they come, they promise you, next time we are going to clean up poverty, vote for me, I'll do that. And people have to try, okay, give them another chance. They go back, 
and they can't do anything. So they say promises after promises goes on, nothing gets done. But we citizens just can't sit around and say, let government do it, I'm busy making money. I don't think this is a good explanation. We have tremendous capacity to do that. Each one of us can do in our own way. I don't have to define how we can do that, but each one of us can do it. If that is a problem, I can contribute in solving the problem. Many, very well. We have discussed about the microfinance, we discussed about the social business, somebody may have a better idea than that or similar idea than that. All I'm saying, we have the capability as a human being to remove this phenomenon called poverty from this planet. And we are capable of doing that. Only need the structure and the concept, that's all. And we should be creating a world where poverty will be only in the museum, not in human society. Because it's unacceptable to any civilized society to have anybody to say he or she is a poor person. So that's a challenge that we have to accept. And if we take it as a challenge, I'm sure we'll make it. And that's why Millennium, Devel Millennium Summit adopted those Millennium Development Goals. And number one goal is to reduce poverty by half by 2015. And many countries will be achieving that. And Bangladesh is one country will achieve that goal by 2015, reduce poverty by half. And many other countries. We, we wish to make all eight Millennium Development Goals happen. And we are very close to it. Only one item that we are falling behind is the maternal mortality, which we are struggling hard to make it happen. So if you can reduce it by half by 2015, what is so big deal to make it zero in 2030 or some such year? Because you already make it half. So it's a question of going the halfway mode. So this, but we can do it faster because we learned a lot and the technology is coming, structures is falling into place, so we can do that. It's a question of determination and commitment that we want to make it happen and it will happen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I'm sure you uh, realize how much everybody here actually appreciates not over your, only your presence here, but your work over a long uh, period of time. You've been an inspiration to many, many people, and you left rather a challenge. And in fact, I would love to be a fly on the wall when, they, when the head of economics uh, reports your words to his uh, staff. Okay. But thank you for that challenge. Uh, thank you very much. With the, with the authority of the Board of Governors, I declare this ceremony closed, and I'd ask everybody to remain seated until the platform party have left. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>